to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight, uh, the title of what I've titled our Bible study is Work Out Your Salvation. Work Out Your Salvation. That's a quote. Um, from Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. But to jump into the topic, I want to ask you a question. And this is meant to be a very simple question. It's not a trick question, so don't make it more complicated than it is. If you've got two people that don't really know each other, but they're going to develop a relationship, who can initiate that relationship between those two people? Either one, right? See, I told you it was a simple question. All right. Now, Let's say they do begin a relationship. They strike up a conversation. They spend some time or whatever. Who's responsible to maintain the health and vitality of that relationship? Both of them. Very good. You guys are batting a thousand. All right. Yeah. Whether you're talking about a friendship or a friendship that develops into a marriage or whatever, you know, between two people, either one can initiate it based on whatever factors. But if that relationship is going to grow and develop It takes the responsibility of both of them, right? Now, if we're talking about a relationship between God and a person, who can initiate a relationship between God and a person? We've got a lot of people answering at the same time. So, Verissa raised her hand to make a point. So, since she raised her hand, I'll let her go first. Go ahead, Verissa. God has already initiated it. You're right. He initiated it before we were born, didn't he? But the important thing is that this is different than the other kind of relationship and the fact that people cannot initiate it. That isn't the main point of what we're looking at tonight, but the Bible talks about that without God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we can only respond to him, and that's the key there, we can only respond to him. He had to initiate it. Okay, without God initiating it, we would have no relationship with God. But the second question that we asked, once we have a relationship with God, because he initiated it and we did respond to it, whose responsibility is it to maintain the health and vitality of that relationship? Ours? Does God not do anything to maintain it? Of course he does. Yeah, I know you wanted to emphasize we've got something we got to do. And that really is the point about when you talk about tonight. But it's both. God always does his part. The problem is we don't always do our part, okay? And so that's what we want to talk about tonight. As I said, the title is Work Out Your Salvation. So we're going to read Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. And Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? Now, he starts off here with therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, I heard this years ago, you need to figure out what it's there for. Okay? Whenever you see therefore, it's basing what's getting ready to come out on something that's been said before, is this, 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 and therefore. All right? 
So we'd have to know what came before this in Philippians to know what he's trying to base it on. Yes, Dorothy. Wherefore. Okay, well, that's one way I guess you could translate it too, but it's therefore, my beloved. Okay, so what has he been talking about before this? You may already be familiar with it, but the Philippian church, first of all, the, the, the letter to the Philippians is full of joy, and Paul's writing from prison, but he's got the joy of the Lord. He's writing to them about his joy, their joy, and how God can give them even more joy. And uh, he's thankful because this church has supported him through their prayers and their giving and all that kind of stuff. But they've had a little bit of conflict, you know, especially between these two women. And um, anyway, Paul names them. Can you imagine, you know, when he writes this letter, he writes it to the church. And so the pastor gets up to read it when the church is gathered. And you get to a certain point in the letter and he says, and by the way, tell these two women to get, and he mentions them by name, to get along with each other. You know, um, so anyway, but there was a little bit of grumbling and complaining. And so as a part of what he's writing in the beginning of chapter two, he talks about what Jesus Christ did for us and how he humbled himself, taking on the form of a man, even being willing to die on a cross. But because of that, God has raised him up and that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. OK, and it's one of the most powerful theological passages about Jesus being God, but him laying aside, putting aside some of his privileges, some of his, um, you know, responsibilities to come and be man to die for us. And Paul uses that as an example at the beginning of chapter 2, saying we should have that same attitude. We shouldn't just be so concerned about ourselves. We need to think about others. We need to do what's best for others, Okay. And so basically his point is that since Jesus was willing to do that and Jesus was obedient to the Father to accomplish his purposes, then we should be willing to do the same thing. We should be willing to obey. So that's why he says, therefore, as you've always obeyed, sound so now not only, in my, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. So what does he mean when he says work out your salvation. I thought salvation was a gift. How do we reconcile the fact that salvation is a gift because of God's grace and mercy with the fact that God is speaking through Paul and says that we got to work it out? Any thoughts? We shouldn't take it for granted. That's definitely for sure. So how do we reconcile that, Melva? Okay. So... Salvation is not just an event that happens when we're saved, but it's something that has to be, you said, worked out. That's the term you developed and stuff. Okay, but there's some other thoughts about how we reconcile the fact that salvation is a gift by God's grace through faith, but yet we're supposed to work it out. Any other thoughts along those lines? Okay, so if you're saved, it will affect your life in such a way that there are things you're going to do. And James talks about that quite a bit. But it's not the things that we do that get us saved. But if we're saved, there's things we're going to do. All right? Uh, Lynn, you look like you're getting ready to say something. All right. So if I could paraphrase and summarize what you said, we receive salvation as a gift. But if we're truly saved, that will manifest itself in our lives in many ways, and we affect how it manifests itself. Right? In fact, we need to do some stuff about how it manifests itself. All right? So notice that it doesn't say here work for your salvation because that would be a contradiction. 
and that'd be heresy, okay? Which you're not going to find heresy in God's word. He doesn't say, therefore, beloved, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. That word for working or working out means to bring to fulfillment or completion. God saves us, but we have to live it out. It is going to be, it is going to make a difference in our lives. Um, Somebody likened it like this. You've heard of a term that this company was working a mine, right? What does that mean? They were mining the ore or the coal or whatever that was in the mine. Did they put that ore there? No, okay? Um, Did that ore appear there because of something they wanted to do or they did? or, or, or No, it was just there, but they had to work it to get it out, all right? Same idea when you talk about somebody working a field. A farmer working a field. Do they bring the life from the seed? No. The seed brings the life. But there are many things the farmer does in that field to bring that life to abundance and fruition and, 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 and fruitfulness and that kind of a thing. And so the idea is basically to get the best benefit possible. So there's a number of truths, and I didn't put all of them on here that we could have drawn from these two verses, that I want to bring out tonight <clears throat> That can help us to maintain a balance in our lives and also make sure that we're doing everything we can to um, receive all the benefits from our salvation, but also to demonstrate that to a world that's around us, okay, and live a life that is pleasing to God. Carlton. Yeah, the ongoing, I like that, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. In fact, one of the commentaries I read in studying for this, they said that in this passage, Paul never mentions the Holy Spirit, but really it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Again, once we're saved, it's a gift from God. You know, we respond to his offer of salvation, but it makes a difference in our lives. It makes a difference in our lifestyle, okay? So the first point that I have on your note sheet there is our obedience doesn't purchase our salvation, but it should be the result, Okay, Our obedience doesn't purchase our salvation, but it should be the result. In other words, we can't be good enough to earn salvation. But if we are truly saved, it will result in a changed life. The clearest scripture that demonstrates both sides of this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. In other words, you you couldn't do anything. You couldn't earn it. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, you know, God wants a relationship with you, and he offers it to you for free. Jesus paid the price. Through faith, you can receive salvation because of God's grace. But the reason he wants to save us is he wants that relationship and he wants to do things in and through us. And so if we've truly responded by faith to God's grace and salvation, then it will manifest itself in the good works that he created us to do. Okay, a lifestyle change. One person put it this way, the working out is a result of God working in us. From the inside out. Okay. It's sanctification. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to mention that a few minutes ago, but I was listening to somebody else and I forgot. 
So they've got salvation, we became right with God, but then it leads to sanctification, which is a spiritual word, just means that it changes our life. Okay? To sanctify is the same thing as to make holy. Um, holiness means to be separate, separate from sin and separated to God. So it changes our life. The Jameson, Faust, and Brown commentary says this. Salvation is worked in believers by the Spirit, who enables them through faith to be justified once for all. But it needs as a progressive work to be worked out by obedience through the help of the same Spirit unto perfection. Okay. The second point I have here is our obedience should not be dependent on someone else. Our obedience should not be dependent on somewhere else. You know, Paul starts out by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, which equates, equates with obedience. All right? I have two bullet points there. Uh, two explanations or two clarifications or narrowing it down. Our obedience should not be dependent on someone else. The first bullet point, for motivation. For motivation. And whereas Paul says, man, when I was with you, and Paul established the church in Philippi. People responded tremendously, okay? And they're growing in the Lord. He says, you know, you guys did great while I was there, but just keep on doing great even though I'm not there. Have you ever known somebody who did what was right but only when somebody else is watching? Have you ever done that? What did you say, Carlton? An eye servant. Yeah, I thought you were testifying that that was... <laughs> we all have, haven't we? I mean, don't we have a tendency to do better, more when somebody's watching us? And we're, you know, yeah. It's something we all wrestle with, just to be honest. It's human nature, right? And basically, Paul is saying here, listen, you know, we need to obey God as a response to his goodness to us. But not just when somebody's watching. He's using himself as an example, you know. Um, not only in my presence, but even when I'm not there. And the same thing should be true for us, that we need to obey God, you know, whether somebody else is watching or not, um, whether somebody else is there to motivate us or not. And it's all something we have to wrestle with. It's a little bit easier, maybe not a lot easier, but a little bit easier to put your best foot forward, to put on your best face, to do the best thing when you know somebody's watching, whether it's because you're afraid of the condemnation or the whatever that would come if you don't, or because you just want to look good, or whatever, okay? And God, help us to be mature enough and determined enough to say, God, I want to please you. Because we've got to keep in mind, God's always watching. But sometimes we find it easy to kind of presume upon God's grace. Well, God will forgive me, or, you know, God knows I'm just human. And all those things are true, but, um, yeah, it shouldn't be dependent just on somebody else for motivation. Yeah, Lynn. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and you know, another thing that goes along with this, you know, they, they say, what is the definition of character? It's who you are when nobody's watching, you know, and there's a difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what people think you are, whereas character is what you really are. Yeah. Whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're going to get to that idea, too, some more in, the, in one of the next points. I don't know if it's the next one or the one after that. So our obedience should not be dependent on someone else for motivation, but our obedience should not be dependent on somebody else for completion. What do I mean by that? He says um, here, um, work out your own salvation. In other words, the idea here is do it yourself. 
Don't be dependent on somebody else to make sure it gets done. Again, as I said just a minute ago, have you ever known somebody that only did what was right when someone else was watching? Have you known of anybody that only did what was right if somebody agreed to help them? You know, it's like, well, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I don't want to do it by myself. You know, if somebody will help me, I'll do it. You know, again, it's something that we all might have a tendency to do. Okay, but, but God says through Paul here, you need to work out your own salvation. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't depend on other people for help? Does that mean that others, we can't, you know, others can't be helped or that we shouldn't help each other? No. I mean, the Bible's full of teachings about how we need to be there for each other. There's absolutely nothing wrong with thinking there's everything that's right about the fact that God has put us together as brothers and sisters in Christ in this family to help and encourage and strengthen one another, to be there to lift one another up. When one person's weak, another person's the strength, you know, we pray for one another, we hold each other accountable. All those things are biblical. But we still need to learn to stand on our own two feet and take responsibility for who we are and what we do instead of just saying, well, nobody helped me. You know, so, you know, and they use that as an excuse not to develop and become all that God wants us to be. Okay, so other people can be helpful in so many ways. Now, I want to throw this in here. I came across this when I was studying. It says, we should be primarily focused on our obedience, not somebody else's. All right, Paul says here, um, work out your own salvation. He doesn't say work out somebody else's salvation. Now, that is not to say that in our love for others, in our relationship with others, that we're not to help each other or that we don't even at times uh, are used by God to hold each other accountable, okay? And to lovingly confront a brother or sister who's not living up to their confession, their profession, their, their walk in the Lord, all right? But I'm sure you're aware as well as I am that it seems like sometimes there are some people, nobody in this room I'm sure, and nobody in our church either, that have a lot more concern about everybody else's salvation and how it's worked out than their own. <laughs> okay? And so, anyway. Uh, the third point here is our obedience is an ongoing responsibility. And I think you realize that just as well as I do. I mean, is there anybody in this room, you've gotten to the point where you don't even have to think about obedience anymore. You're so perfect that you just automatically always do what's right and good and loving and what God wants you to do. John testifies that's him. That's why he says we must continue to work out our salvation. We, we just keep working on it because until we get to heaven, none of us are going to be perfect. We're always going to have things to work on. Hopefully we're making lots of progress. All right? Um, we never truly arrive. You know, there's a, a, when I was preparing the notes, I thought of this question that we all, is one of many questions that we ask whenever we're doing premarital counseling. And uh, one whole section of premarital counseling is about love and infatuation and what's the difference and how do you know you're really in love and what is true love and all that kind of stuff. And there's a whole series of questions to kind of dig into that. And one of the questions is this, true or false? If a couple is genuinely in love, that condition is permanent, lasting a lifetime. So let me ask you. You guys are older and mature. Most of you, maybe all of you, I don't know, have been married at some point in time. How would you respond, true or False. If a couple is genuinely in love, that condition is permanent, lasting a lifetime. How many would say true? How many would say false? Several. 
Pat's, Pat's, Pat's wasn't getting a discussion. Not necessarily, maybe. Okay. Because people change. So it's okay if, if people, in situations, so if people say, hey, we don't love each other anymore because situations have changed, people change, so forget it. What'd you say? People have done that. I know they have done that. I'm just saying, is that okay? Okay. No, it's not okay. So what is it dependent on? Working at it. There you go. That's the whole point. Okay? See, it depends. Somebody said it depends. It's conditional, right? The answer is both true and false. Those of you that voted false, which is a great majority, you're right. But it can be true, right? I mean, it can be true, can't it? If people really love each other, that condition can be permanent. It just doesn't do it automatically. You have to work at it. Yeah, Carlton, you had your hand up. Love is a decision. Yeah, and that's one of the things we dig into, that love is not this ushy-gushy feeling and all that kind of stuff. We, I mean, we're glad for the ushy-gushy feeling, but it's, it's much more than that, okay? So that, let me finish. That relationship has to be nurtured. And a great example is a plant. A plant can flourish, but it has to have the appropriate amount of sunshine for that plant, the appropriate amount of water, and the appropriate amount of nutrients. You get two people that commit to each other because true love is a commitment, okay? And they're willing to do the things that need to be done. That love can be permanent and be wonderful. And the same thing is true um, in our relationship with God. And it's, so it's an ongoing responsibility. Yeah, Lynn. That's right. That's right. You talk about people who love the Lord, and then you see them start drifting. And so whose fault is that, God or theirs? Theirs, yeah. It's like that old – some of you are old enough to remember um, – Maybe all of you, I don't know. <laughs> the bench seats in the cars. I mean, now we got the bucket seats, and you know, they got the things in the middle. But the bench seats, you know, and you could scoosh up real close and get a bunch of people in the front seat. And, and this old couple that was dri- older couple that was driving down the road, and the husband's driving, the wife's sitting on the other side, and they're talking with each other. And the wife turns to her husband and says, "Honey, what happened? Do you remember? Do you remember?" All those decades ago, we were dating and stuff, and I'd be right there, and you'd have my arm around. We'd be driving around town showing off that we're with each other and all that kind of stuff. What happened to us? He says, I didn't move. (laughs) So, you know, that's true about our relationship with God. If we're drifting from God, he's not moved. You know, chances are he's probably even reached out even more. And uh, so anyway, (laughs) our obedience is an ongoing relationship. We've got to nurture the relationship. God's always there. Now, he puts a little phrase in here, Paul. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Does that mean that it's like I can have a relationship with God, but I better toe the line or he's going to zap me good? They were afraid of his judgment. Why does he throw in that with fear and trembling? John? Honesty, integrity. Okay. Respect and not being frivolous. Frivolous. Yeah, you're taking it seriously. All right. What other thoughts come to mind about this with fear and trembling? Mm-hmm. That's right. Fear knowing that without God's love, without his gift of salvation, you know, the consequences of separate, eternal separation from him. Yeah. God is a loving God, but he's also a just God. Yeah. Yes, Dorothy. With reverence. That all these words you guys have mentioned, awe, respect, reverence, integrity, okay, not frivolous, 
Those are very, very important. So the next point, number four, builds on that. Our obedience should be motivated by both love and respect for God. Now, we know that people's experiences with their parents and with their father in particular is sometimes good and not, sometimes not so good because human parents are human. And unfortunately, there are some that are actually even evil, and there's a lot of things in between. It's not meant to stir up anything. But if you have a good relationship with a good parent, with a good father, you're going to obey them for two different reasons, right? You're going to obey them because you love them and they love you. But that's not the only reason. You're going to obey them because they have authority, responsibility, and the ability to take care of issues if you don't do it right. Right? Right. So just like that, our obedience should be motivated by both love and respect. And if you had a good relationship, and I hope you did, a good relationship with either parent, but especially your father, you, it was based on love but also respect. Okay? Um, And we see this principle all through Scripture, all the way back at the beginning when God established his relationship with his people. He delivered them from Egypt out of slavery, took them to uh, Mount Sinai. He said, listen, I I deliver you from slavery. If you want a relationship with with me, here's what it's going to be like, okay? And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, which is basically Moses um, reiterating all this for the next generation because the first generation messed it up so bad, he says this. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He says, listen, you've got a relationship with God now. He delivered you. What does he want? He wants you to love him. He wants you to fear him. And both of those things are going to, in, going to result in you obeying him to keeping the commands and the statutes. I've got a number of other scriptures there we're not going to read. John 14, verses 15 and 23, 1 John 5, 3, and 2 John 1, 6. And all of those say the same thing. Basically, that is that obedience is the proof of our love for God. Jesus himself says in John, and then John says in 1 John and 2 John, if we really love God, we'll obey him. And Jesus even goes so far as to say, if we don't obey him, we may not, we think we love him, but we really don't. Okay? All right. The fifth point there is we must choose to obey, but God will provide the strength. And this is the good news. Any of you ever struggle with obeying? Lisa's willing to confess very loudly and proudly. (laughs) It's true for all of us. We have to choose to obey. God's not going to force us to obey. But he promises to provide the strength. We see that here in verse 13. You know, Paul says, listen, you need to choose to obey, work out your salvation, fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You need to work it out, but this, you can do it because God's already working in you. Okay? And the quotes I read earlier, that God in us is working it out through us. It's the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. So we must choose to obey, but God will provide the strength. Where it says that God is working in you. It's a different word for work um, than the one that says work out your salvation. Okay, The word here that's used with God when it says that God is working in you, it, it, it means to energize and to enable for what's required. Okay, 
And God does that. Paul even had that testimony in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He's talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about how he should have been one of the last... He was the, le- the one that was least worthy of God's grace because he'd persecuted the church and all that kind of stuff. And he's talking to the Corinthians, and there's some problems there because these other guys have come in and tor- torn Paul down and put him down, and they had this kind of thing of super apostles. In fact, he calls them you know, super apostles kind of sarcastically. All right, And he's defending what God was doing in and through him. But in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what he means by that is not I'm pathetic. He means I'm even accepted by God because of God's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. You see, these guys that come across like they're super spiritual and all that kind of stuff, and they're tearing down God's people, God's leaders, you know, he says, I fully admit I don't deserve to be a leader. I don't deserve to be able to do what God's called me to do and what he's enabled me to do. But I'm able to do it because of God working in me and through me. And God will do the same thing for us. If we choose to obey, God will provide the strength. All right? And then number six, which is the last point we have, we must choose to obey, but God will provide the desire. Now, this is really good. I mean, not only do we struggle sometimes to obey, but don't we struggle to even want to obey? Sure. We struggle to want to do the right thing. Why is it if we are Christians, if God really has saved us? I'm not talking about we just look like it on that, but we really are saved. Jesus died for us. We've accepted that. We've responded to it. Why is it that we still struggle to want to do the right thing? We got five or six people all uh, answer at the same time. So who wants to go first? Go ahead, Sharon. Because we're still in the flesh. Okay, the sinful fallen nature. Carlton? The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three work against us. We got the world around us and the world system. And we got the devil who's energizing it and stirring it up. And unfortunately, we got a traitor inside. The flesh, right? The sinful flesh. God's Holy Spirit dwells within us, but we still have our sinful flesh. Thank God that will be glorified one day. And we will not have to worry about the desire to do wrong anymore. But Yeah, it's a battle. Mm-hmm. That's right. Without God, it would be hopeless. So... The flesh battles against the spirit. I have on your note sheet, I'm not going to read it, but Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, that's that passage when Paul talks about how, you know, God brought the law into the world and it was a good thing, but it made us aware of sin, so it brought condemnation, and I wanted to do the right thing, but I couldn't do the right thing, and Paul's going back and forth and back and forth. I wanted to do the right thing, but I kept doing the wrong thing, and the good stuff that I wanted to do, I didn't do, and we can wrestle, we can, we can, um, we can um, relate to the wrestling he's talking about. And he gets to the end, he says, what am I going to do? What's going to deliver me? He says, only through Jesus Christ. And then I like it, the first verse of the next chapter, which the chapters weren't there when Paul wrote it, but it says, there is now therefore there no, con- there's now therefore no condemnation when we're in Christ Jesus. But the wrestling is there. 
In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about it too. There's a lot of similarities between Romans and Galatians, but Galatians 5, verses 16 to 17, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So I am so glad that God not only will help me to do the right things, but he'll help me to want to do the right things. And I'd say, I pray that all the time. I say, God, help me not only to do the right thing, help me to want to do the right things. Because if I listen to my flesh, I'm being pulled strong to do the wrong things. You know? So help me to want to do the right things. Now, does this mean, since God promises to help change our desires that we don't have to obey till we feel like it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, we got to do what's right whether we feel like it or not, but thank the Lord when he does help change our desires. Um, I thought this was really interesting. There are, you, you, you'll come across statements that aren't in the Bible but are helpful, right? They're, they're truthful to some degree. And what we're talking about tonight is kind of like a balance between two statements that are true in the right context, but they may not fit every context. You've got that one statement that says, let go and let God. Right, And there's certain situations to which that applies. There's times when we're trying to take over and do what God wants to do for us, or it's not our responsibility, you know, or whatever, and we've got to let go and let God. So God's going to do his part. But sometimes people will use that excuse not to do anything. And God says, don't let go and let me. You've got to do your part. I've already done my part, all right? And then there's another statement that people think is in the Bible, but it really isn't, but there is some truth to it, and that is God helps those who help themselves. And there's a lot of truth to that. If you're not willing to do what you can, why should you expect that God's going to help you? All right? Now, again, neither one of those are in the Bible, and neither one of them are 100% true for every situation, but there's a lot of truth. So what we're studying tonight is kind of a balance of that. You don't just let go and let God. You've got to do what you've got to do to work out your salvation. But neither is it, well, God will only help me if I help myself, you know, and I've got to put all this effort out. It's like, no, you know, um, we've got to depend on God's presence and God's power, too. Chris? Yeah. The very first murder... And major sin, besides the fall in the Bible, is Cain killing Abel. And God had warned Cain ahead of time. His jealousy because Abel did the right thing and he didn't. And God gave him approval, gave Abel approval and Cain didn't have God's approval. He says, listen, sin is crouching at your door like a, a vicious animal waiting to attack you. Wants to have you. And he says, but he didn't listen to it. So, so the good news between these last two points is God will give us what we need to do what he expects us to do. All right? So to summarize this, we're saved because of what God has done for us, but we respond to that salvation and grow in our relationship with him through what we do for him with his help. We do it, but we can't do it without him. There's a statement I made up years and years and years ago, and that's the last thing on your note sheet besides that passage in Romans, is we can't do it without God, and God won't do it without us. God can do anything he wants, but there are certain things he chooses not to do because he wants us to do it. He wants us to put some initiative into it. But to truly live for God, and because of what Carlton said a little little while ago, it's overwhelming to think of all the forces that are against us. We can't do it. We cannot do it without God. We cannot live a life pleasing to him. We cannot work out our salvation. We cannot 
obtain, manifest, develop all that God has for us without God. But God's not just going to do it for us. We've got to do our part. So to wrap this up, I want to read a passage in Romans chapter 13 that kind of is the same theme. But I think it speaks to us today because we live much closer to the return of Jesus than anybody that's ever lived before us. I mean, that's just a logical statement. I mean, obviously, because we later in history. And just today I was talking to somebody, said, well, you, you, and I was talking about this series that we're going to launch into, Tough Questions. He said, i got a question. Are we living in the end times? Are we living in the last days? And, and I, maybe we'll deal with that one too. And I said, well, biblically, yes, we are, because according to the Bible, the last days started when Jesus ascended into heaven. So for 2,000 years we've been in the last days. But that's not what they meant. But the thing is, our world's in a mess. We talked about that some in our elder meeting yesterday. You look at the news, and things are just, just getting worse and worse and worse. And in light of that, I mean, no matter when you lived in history, if you want to live for God, you need to live for God. But especially as we get closer to the end, especially as we see the way our world is going, it becomes even more serious that we need to pay attention. So Paul says this in Romans 13, verses 11 to 13. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He's saying, listen, you guys are kind of just drifting. You guys are just, you know, wake up, wake up, pay attention. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So here's the idea. It's not, he's not saying you're not quite saved yet, but you'll get there. You know, we have salvation, but the completion of it is getting close. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he told them in, in, the book of, in a letter to Romans almost 2,000 years ago, he says, listen, it's getting bad. It's getting closer to Jesus' return. He had no idea it was going to be another almost 2,000 years. He said, we've got to get serious about our walk with God. You know, we don't need to take it frivolously like Pat was saying we shouldn't do it earlier. We need to be serious about it. God's judgment is coming to the world. Thank God that we don't have to worry about his judgment because Jesus has saved us. But we've got a responsibility to live for him, not just for our own benefit, but to reach a lost world. He says, so we need to wake up. We need to shake off the complacency. We need to really live for Jesus, not just I'm living for Jesus. Let's really live for Jesus. Let's work out our salvation. Let it be manifested to the world, not for our glory, but as Jesus said, so that people might see our good works and give glory to God and our Father in heaven. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to look at these two verses in Philippians tonight, Lord God. And I, There's nothing we really talked about tonight that probably was a new truth to most anybody in this room. But, Lord, may it be a wake-up call, like Paul was saying in Romans, Lord, that we just need to enjoy, enjoy our life with you, but yet be very serious, Lord God, about waking up and shaking off any apathy or complacency about really living for you. And God, to do that, we desperately need your help. We need your help to walk in victory over the flesh. We need your help to even want to walk in victory over the flesh. So Lord, do a work in us. Thank you that you are already in us. Your spirit already dwells within us. So Lord, continue to work in us and through us from the inside out. And help us, Lord, to do our part. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. 
For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.